Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Wednesday morning, the 13th of December. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February 2022, the Irish government has not just stood with the people of Ukraine in solidarity with every effort they've made in protecting democracy, but over the last 20 months, this country has supported Ukraine in that effort by welcoming over 100,000 refugees into Ireland. Each person arriving here has been welcomed with open arms, granted special temporary refugee status, given a PPS number, the right to work and full welfare entitlements while at the same time the state has provided them with accommodation that is guaranteed for the time that they'll stay in this country but now the state has said it has not the wherewithal to continue with the Cade Mila Falcha. Welfare is to be cut from €220 to €3880 and accommodation will be provided for a maximum of just 90 days. Music, perhaps, to the ears of Vladimir Putin. But is this a victory for Putin or is it a victory for the hard right? Local and European elections will be held next year, so that could make up part of government's thinking. And then there's the cost of the riots two weeks ago. The bill is said to be in around €20 million and nobody wants to see a repeat of that. But what about the Ukrainians? How will their lives be here when they flee the war back home. We are confident that we will be able to provide uh, that state accommodation uh, for those uh, 90 initial days uh, to give people coming from Ukraine a chance to establish themselves uh, and a chance to find uh, their own accommodation, own employment, um, whatever they can uh, manage to do. Um, and some of that accommodation already exists across the system. Uh, as I mentioned already, um, people who have moved into state accommodation uh, from Ukraine don't always stay there. Uh, some have moved on to find their own accommodation. Others have moved on to other parts of the European Union. So accommodation does become free uh, in the existing former hotels, former B&Bs. Uh, we also have the modular homes, which the OPW is building. Uh, we have the refer program, uh, which uh, is taking old buildings uh, and bringing them back into use uh, as accommodation. So all of that will continue. Uh, and we've already managed to uh, find accommodation for 
uh, over 70,000 Ukrainians. Uh, some of that will be the same accommodation as people move out. We will, of course, need to source additional accommodation, as we have done for the past two years. Uh, and in a crisis situation like this, uh, I appreciate that uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good, uh, and it is any accommodation that we can find. Uh, but in a lot of cases, it's going to be former hotels, you, former B&Bs, uh, and refurb buildings. That's uh, Taoiseach Leo Bradker speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Emma Lane Spallin is uh, the National Coordinator for the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. She joins us now. And good morning to you, Emma. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I suppose we'd been expecting this news, uh, but it, it doesn't make it any more palatable. How has it gone down with the uh, Ukrainian community? I think they, they're they very subdued and a sense of exhaustion. Um, there's a lot of fear and anxiety. They don't know what this signals. And I suppose um, this is a war that's both being physically fought in Ukraine, but also psychologically being fought. And I think this is a big blow psychologically to those who are here now. But I do think it's important that we really stress that this is for new arrivals. It's not going to have any impact on people who are here now and hosts who are receiving the 800 euros uh, a month recognition payment will continue to receive that. Okay, but for those coming to the country, perhaps uh, from February onwards, we're going to see these changes? Yeah, that's our understanding. They would hope to bring the law through then. And yeah, who knows? Obviously, this is an attempt at uh, deterrence. Uh, They want people to flee to other countries. Um, but I think what you have to remember that what we have in Ireland is we're a distance from Russia. Uh, we have the English language. We have full employment. So there's plenty of work. Uh, and people have their family here. And that's what draws people to Ireland, along with being a, a reasonably friendly country. You know, we have done a remarkable job of receiving people. And the community response has been extraordinary. I mean, there's over 19,600 people being accommodated in Irish hosts. Um, and pledged accommodation. I mean, that's remarkable. But the challenge is for those who are the 55,000 who are in the service accommodation, where do they go? Um, what is the future for them? And our concern is the policy at the moment, the debate at the moment is deflecting from the key pl- problem, which is we have not planned for the medium term. We have no pipeline, really, of accommodation. And when... But, uh, but uh, is, is that not exactly the plan um, uh, that we, because we don't have uh, the accommodation, we're sending out this message, don't come here, you're not welcome? Well, that is what they're, they're doing. But I would say, fine, off you go and do that. But now you really need to commit to developing a medium term plan. And Leo Varadkar mentions modular and renovations. They both add up. They were decisions last November, and they add up to new 5,800 beds, which isn't even 8% of what is required. So there's, there's no ambition at scale at really addressing this problem. We're really just warehousing people. But we've 800 people coming a week from Ukraine, don't we? No, we've got 450 at the moment. So the, the, the actual problem is that we, we knew back in February, March 2022, Michal Martin said we would be expecting at least 100,000 people, right? We have received 100,000 people. 18% of those have also left the country because they can't find accommodation. So we have the people that are here and we need a plan for how we integrate them. And the, the question we have to ask ourselves is what do we want as a country for these new arrivals? You know, do we want them living and working and paying tax? Or do we want to warehouse them and incrementally taking away their ability to live their own lives? You know, at the end of the day, people don't choose to come here. They actually want to be with their own family and they Mm. want to be back in Ukraine. But the other thing we have to remember is that about 40% of the Ukrainians who are here 
come from the occupied and destroyed areas, from Mariupol and others. Their cities and homes are destroyed. We mm. have to plan for them and think about that they will be here for a few years. Mm. Uh, but uh, about 30% of the Ukrainians who have come here recently, according to the government, and how recently, we don't know, but according to the government, about 30% of the Ukrainians who have come here recently have come from other European countries. In other words, they left the Ukraine, went uh, to somewhere uh, where people may say the benefits are, are not uh, as great as they are in Ireland and decided to come here then as a, a result. That seems to be what the government is telling us. That's certainly what they're saying, but they've never shown any evidence because I don't see how they're actually... Uh, knowing that, because they don't really actually properly track this at all. So I think it is a little bit heresy. So we could say 30% have come, but we also know 20% have left. And that's the thing with temporary protection. People are allowed to move around. And a lot of the time, it's about family reunification, right? But people also come because they leave this country because there's no accommodation, but they also come here because of the English language and they've got family and and there's opportunities to work. Mm. And most uh, Ukrainians here are working or want to work. And uh, we have 450 people, you say, coming a week. I have seen other estimates at 800, uh, but uh, I'm sure uh, you have the inside track uh, uh, on that. uh, And I'm sure you're aware of those uh, other figures. But uh, even at that, 450 people coming on top of the 100,000 or or thereabouts who are already here, uh, does it not eventually get to a stage where you reach capacity? Yeah, I mean, there's, 80, there's 82,000 people who are here still now. Um, so that's the figure we have. And yes, it, there is a feeling because we, we haven't developed any medium-term accommodation. And the fact is, you know, we are in a housing crisis. And I think that has to be called out because accommodation comes into the middle of it. Um, but what people need are not, you know, home for life. They just need a place to put over their head that is a little bit stable and that they can have a bit of a family life. And that should be being, we should be doing rapid build apartment mm. blocks. I mean, we, we just need to uh, take the fact that there are probably, it's going to be about 25,000 household units that you're going to need uh, if there's you no know, mother and two children as, as a unit. Um, just Let's just plan for that rather than denying it. So, so let's not be distracted. Yes, you can do and hope that the, the new policies will, will give them a breathing space. But that's, I think, going to create new problems. Cause it, it, but it, anyway, that's for the government to sort out. Mm. But for now, they really need to make a commitment to um, looking at the medium term. Otherwise, we're never going to get out of this crisis. Okay. Um, and, and really, we have to have some much more compassionate solutions because we have done so well so far. I think we can actually do this, but it does require ambition from the government. If people are leaving Ukraine uh, or thinking of leaving Ukraine in the coming weeks or months, uh, if they're planning on coming to Ireland, uh, they'd be wise to do so before uh, the end of January, wouldn't they? Uh, They should come now, if that's the case. Do you expect to see a surge? It's very hard to say. I mean, at the end of the day, people know that we have an accommodation challenge here. It's almost impossible to rent, right? The, the, level, the standard of what people are living in, you know, is not great. So, you know, it is a rock and a hard place. If they have to come, if they need to flee, they will come and they'll go wherever they can because we still have an opportunity for people to be able to work here because we have full employment. We need people to work. Our, our challenge is we don't have, have places to put them. And yet, at the same time, we have whatever over 50,000, 60,000 vacant properties in the country. So, you know, it's part of a, a bigger problem in the country about managing property. Mm. Come February, uh, you're going to see uh, far less on offer. Uh, How will Ukrainians survive or will they just not come to Ireland? 
I think we're going to face a, a whole new problem three months in um, if we have, uh, you know, let's remember who's coming. It's women, children, elderly are the predominant uh, profile of people. You come into a country, you've got three months, you're probably living in a tent in, in, in Wicklow or some remote place. Um, how on earth are you supposed to find accommodation? We know that how hard it is. Look at the 6,000 people who live in direct provision who have refugee status that can't get out because we don't have an affordable or accessible rental market. These women and children are going to be in exactly the same state, except that they will have absolutely no right to accommodation. So they will either become homeless, and that's street homeless because there's no responsibility on homeless services to look after refugees. They will be forced into potentially exploitative situations, sexual exploitation and others, because people will offer them a room with uh, services. Um, and there will be, um, or they will be directed into the international protection system, which is what the government didn't want. So I can't see this policy being practically implementable. Uh, I think the hope is it acts as a deterrent and that it allows them some breathing space. But if they get that breathing space, I'm saying they actually need to put together a proper plan for accommodation that allows us to move out of this continuous crisis and doesn't damage people because what we've got here is very vulnerable people and it's real people, real hardship, who face a very uncertain future. They've had a good welcome from Ireland. We have kept Mm. them safe and we want them to go home in good shape, not damaged by their experience here. Okay, the Taoiseach said yesterday we have to get the balance right and we have to ensure that Ireland is not an outlier in relation to the overall offer and the overall package of supports that is available to people fleeing the war. What is on offer elsewhere? Well, it's an absolute mixed bag and it's almost impossible to uh, compare. But having had a quick look at uh, a report yesterday, the European Council on Refugees and Exiles uh, did, a, did a, a review, and it's very varied. So Germany was 410 euros, Spain 400, France 426, all higher than what Ireland is offering. Um, I mean, the, the 38 euros 80 that is being suggested uh, for people in the first three months while they're being accommodated is a direct provision payment that we know is below poverty level. Right, it is a below poverty level payment, but there's no way meets the needs uh, for people to be uh, have a minimum standard of living, and that we we that is a shame on a country that is wealthy as us, and that payment has been not moved since 2015. So, and it hasn't acted as a deterrent for people in the international protection system because that's not what motivates people, but it has resulted in children growing up in poverty. So, I you know, that in itself is a problem. So every country is different. They're all higher, from what I can see, from Ireland. The 90 days seems to be the most severe. Um, and, and we have no rental market for people to move into. So it's an impractical, unworkable uh, proposal. It simply is just to say, don't come. Well, as I said at the outset, that uh, would be uh, music to the ears of Vladimir Putin. Uh, do you believe this is uh, a victory for uh, Russia in terms of... Uh, the information um, and propaganda war uh, that it has with the rest of the world uh, 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 since the Ukraine invasion? Listen, I I think it's another psychological blow to people who are already under enormous um, stress. And there is so much disinformation and and false rumours out there. So that's why I think it's really important to stress for people who are here you're not affected. Um, But it it does create a a mood change. And really, it puts us on us to 
you know, focus on what it is we need to do, which is medium-term planning. We have to try and get people out of B&Bs and, and, and hotels into their own accommodation, paying their own rent, getting jobs, children in school. That is what needs to be done. And I actually think we can do it, but we just need to not get sidetracked into kind of uh, false, false beliefs, false hope, false arguments around why people are here and what, what's driving that. Okay, it's, can, war that, it's war that's driving it. Can the far right claim it spoke uh, by way of uh, the riots in Dublin and uh, the government has been forced uh, to listen? Uh, do you think that this is in any way a victory for the far right? Or uh, to put that a, another way, do you think uh, that the government is concerned about the rise of uh, the far right and what political implications that might have in the local and European elections? I'm very sure it's uh, it's on their agenda as it should be um, because I think we need to look at uh, why people in this country are upset. We need to look at housing. We need to look at our our services and the things that actually are upsetting people and address people's real concerns. What we should not do is say that it's a refugee or a migrant's problem. That's just total deflection. Let's focus on the real problem and how we can really solve it. And I know that politicians and government can do that when they are pushed to do so. And I think it's up to us, I suppose, as the, the general public to uh, get them to to uh, address the big issues, the real issues, which is housing services um, and, and, and not actually demonise uh, people who are vulnerable. So should we start uh, planning uh, for dealing with homeless people come the autumn in this country uh, who happen to arrive here in the spring from Ukraine, uh, who have nowhere to go, who are not entitled to any form of accommodation? Is that the upshot of all of this? And is there any way around it? The only, the only way would be if people can uh, rent or if they can be hosted or people can, you know, I think we have to try and focus on getting what vacant homes that are out there into the system. Um, I think we need to focus on rapid build apartments. Um, I think we need to really double down on the renovations of, of, of mm. the kind of institutions that are out that, that litter this country, mm. institutions that used to be residential. They're not long-term homes, but they would be much better than people living in tents. But that's not um, going to happen at all. I mean, things like that don't happen in that time frame in this country. And the idea of trying to rent somewhere on €220 Euro a week uh, is impossible. I take it there'd be no HAP because there'd be no welfare entitlements, uh, a bit, uh that their 3880 would increase to that amount of 220. But if you've lived for three months in 3880, uh, you're not even going to have a deposit or anything else to your name. No, and, and I think that's where this policy is not designed to be successful for the person seeking refuge. It is, it's not its purpose, and it's not thinking about that. So I think that's probably maybe the room that we need to work on to actually... Um, think about the medium term now before this uh, legislation actually goes through the Oireachtas. Um I think we need to, you know, hold on and, and think about compassionate solutions and we need to um, make sure that we are not creating more harm. And, I, you know, I know we say we can't do it in this country, but you know what it is about this country? If we actually decide to do something, we can. And it's just a question of enough momentum um, and enough demand. And I just don't understand why... Uh, the government hasn't addressed uh, the accommodation and the larger housing crisis in a much more robust manner.
Okay, Emma, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Emma Lane Spallen, National Coordinator of uh, the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. Michael Reed on LMFM. My, my thoughts are with the um, missing fisherman and his family, and obviously the fisherman who was rescued. Uh, these were fishermen who were fishing off the. Uh, uh, from Claharhead off the coast of Louth and I know that the RNLI and the Coast Guard and a number of fishermen and a number of other people are involved in the rescue so uh, our thoughts are with them. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD Rory O'Murakou speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday, yesterday echoing uh, I'm sure the thoughts of many people listening uh, to us uh, this morning. Let's uh, get uh, the latest on uh, this search which resumed this morning at first light. Ivan Longmore, Divisional Controller for the Irish Coast Guard Marine Rescue Coordination Centre in Dublin is on the line and a very good morning to you Ivan and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, successful yesterday with the rescue of uh, that man but one man missing when uh, the search uh, was stood down yesterday evening. What is the latest today? Uh, Good morning Michael yeah as you stated there um, the search has recommenced this morning at first light so we do have Clarehead Green or Coast Guard units on scene uh, conducted a shore search. Um, we have the Irish Coast Guard helicopter Rescue 116 uh, are also on scene, and uh, we're getting assistance too from um, the Irish Lights vessel Grania Whale, and the Clarehead lifeboat will launch this morning as well to continue on with the search offshore. Um, we do have uh, Gardaí divers have arrived on scene, and at some stage this morning they'll launch and hopefully they can uh, conduct a search uh, around where the vessel sunk, uh, and that's where we are at the moment, Michael. Okay, and the vessel has fully sunken at this stage? It has, yeah. Now, obviously, with the tide uh, receding, I mean, the tide is flooding now, but when it goes out, it is partially um, out of the water uh, with, with the antenna and the radio antenna on the wheelhouse. But it has fully sunk uh, in a slightly upright position on the seabed. Uh, and what more can you tell us uh, about this uh, vessel? Was it a, a local vessel? Uh, well, we, I can't comment on that because um, that hasn't been uh, confirmed uh, to us at the moment. All I can confirm is that we did receive um, two Mayday transmissions from it yesterday morning and they were able to pass on uh, the exact position of where they were. So um, as regards the the nature of the sinking uh, and where they came from, uh, I can't comment on that at the moment. Okay, but a a small vessel with a a crew of two, would that be correct? That's correct, Michael, yeah, that's correct. Okay, and obviously an awful lot of concern for the man missing. It's a a long time to be in the water, is it? It is. It is a long time, uh, particularly as we're, you know, we're, we're in winter time. Uh, water temperatures are, 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 although they're at their warmest in the autumn period and coldest in spring, um, it, it, it is cold water. And yes, um, it would be um, a long time to be in the water at this stage. Okay. Uh, the search undoubtedly, though, will continue through the day. That's correct, uh, Michael. So we have a resolution the search will continue today. Mm. Uh, and conditions uh, favourable to a search? Yeah, well, definitely visibility it is. Um, we do have an orderly breeze, about a force 5 to force 6. Uh, it is due to decrease uh, force 4, 5 in the north, and it is going to back west set west later on today. So conditions are favourable for the search. Mm. Uh, uh, is there anything anybody can do to help? 
Well, um, at the moment, we, we have enough assets on scene that we're, we're comfortable with uh, uh, who we've got in terms of the search uh, abilities. So um, we think uh, all, all we would ask for is obviously uh, to, to think of the family and loved ones uh, of the missing person. Uh, but from that uh, point of view, I think we, we have uh, uh, enough uh, assets to hopefully... Uh, bring this search to a successful conclusion. Okay, but uh, undoubtedly local fishermen know uh, as well to bring anything to your attention if uh, uh, they come across something unusual. Well, for sure. And, you know, we, we have our two local Coast Guard units on scene, as I stated earlier, the Clower Head unit and the Green Ore, and they can make themselves known to... They're, they're easily identifiable on scene and they can make themselves known and uh, if they have any up-to-date information to please pass it on to, mm. to the units or they can... If they can't reach them, they can dial 999-112 and just ask for the Coast Guard and they'll be patched through to the Marine Rescue Coordination Centre here in Dublin. It really is a, a horrible scenario, a dreadful situation, as you say, for the family and I'm sure that everybody is thinking of uh, the family who must be at their wits' end... Uh, at this stage uh, and uh, I'm sure they're very grateful as all of us are uh, about uh, the rescue services and the great effort that you're putting into this No we we will Michael we we will continue on with this um, until we get a successful resolution Okay, Ivan, thank you for joining us. No on the problem, Thank Mike. you very much no indeed. That's Ivan Longmore, Divisional Controller for the Irish Coast Guard Marine Rescue Coordination Centre in Dublin. Now, let me bring you some of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, we've a text uh, from Ellen who says, Michael, what's the problem with uh, cutting the Ukrainians' money? They're getting free accommodation, food, no electricity or heating bills. Most are working and still getting social welfare. Thanks uh, for that, Ellen. We're talking about a a very different situation, Uh, Ellen, come uh, February, most likely next year. um, What the Ukrainians here at the moment have is on a a par with uh, what uh, anybody from this country uh, is entitled to. But uh, come February of next year, they will be like uh, asylum seekers, uh, 3880, uh, and uh, actually won't be entitled to uh, accommodation in the way asylum seekers are entitled to accommodation because after 90 days they're on their own. Andrew says, your guest speaking about Ukrainian refugees is forgetting that they will also receive child benefit and a range of other benefits. Uh, They won't be left with solely 38 euro a week, says Andrew. Uh, No, I don't think that's uh, correct, Andrew. I think what we're talking about is uh, the welfare entitlements, which would include child benefit, will be cut uh, and there will be a payment of about half of that €38 per child. Uh, So I don't think that's correct at all, Andrew. Um, Somebody um, in touch saying, I realise what I'm going to say might not uh, be conducive uh, to the present narrative. Um, Are your producers... Uh, in a position to dispel or confirm uh, something about Zelensky. Um, No, we're not. Um, uh, I think I'd go on the internet and uh, fall into a rabbit hole uh, (laughs) and stay there uh, to try and get uh, that dispelled or confirmed, as you say. 
but to add to your statement, our caller says, Ukrainians won't even have a, enough for a deposit. The new refugees will be very vulnerable to abuse and maybe worse from criminals. Um, thank you indeed. I think that is uh, the concern exactly. Uh, somebody else saying, good morning, Michael. I think uh, this is about time that our government came up with a reduction in welfare and uh, the 90-day help for refugees. But this should not only be for Ukrainians, but all refugees entering Ireland as a bus driver. I see these refugees getting supplied with bus routes that Irish could not get and had asked for years. Um, also, what on earth? Where do people get this stuff? Also, there's a, a just say this as facts. Like, also, there's a, a lot of young men that are coming. Oh, here we go. Oh, for God's sake, who on earth has been feeding you with this tripe that's going on? And then they're talking about people in wheelchairs and elderly people and how they're being treated by. Re- where did you get? Oh, this is this is wearing me down. The only people who come to this country and get full welfare uh, and so on are uh, the Ukrainians. Just uh, forget about that first part of uh, the thing that you texted into us because it's complete guff. All other people coming here seeking asylum, uh, if they're not from Ukraine, uh, get the 3880 uh, and temporary accommodation. That That's all they get. It's not a question of them getting 220 euros. I, no wonder people are angry with all of that stuff. No wonder people are angry if they think all of that. Thank you, anyway, for your text. Our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Michelle O'Neill, First Minister-elect, wrote to British Secretary of State Heaton Harris Friday last Friday, emphasising the gravity of the current stalemate in the North and the imperative for urgent action. And so all party t- talks, as you know, Tisha commenced yesterday. The public administration in Belfast is facing massive financial challenges, including the issue of parity for public sector uh, workers. Uh, the North has been underfunded, uh, by the Tory government to a huge uh, extent. And I hate to disillusion uh, Deputy Murphy, but there has been no uh, game-changing financial offer put on the table. In fact, the the offer made by the British government is entirely uh, insufficient. Um, The the talks, uh, Taoiseach, need to be concluded promptly. We need the executive, we need the uh, assembly. can I? Uh, it is, of course, crucial that we negotiate with the Treasury, but I, I personally think this can be done as effectively or more effectively with a functioning executive. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, Taoiseach, will you impress upon the British government the need for these talks to be brought to a speedy conclusion? And furthermore, um, can you outline the work that has been done on Plan B, should Plan A fail? That's uh, the Sinn Féin President, Mary Lou MacDonald, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. There is some hope that uh, the Stormont institutions may be reinstated. Peter McVerry of our sister station U105 is on the line. Thanks indeed, Peter McVerry, for joining us on the programme today. The British government is waving €2.5 billion at the DUP. Are you surprised to hear Mary Lou Macdonald say there that that is not enough? No, not really. But All of the parties here are, are they're not united in many things, but you're united on that. I think I'll intend that it's not it's not enough to phrase that that um, Mary Lou's colleague Michelle O'Neill um, was using up here was that it didn't even touch the surface. So it it, it looks like on on analysis that the claim is that, that out of that two and a half billion that's on the table that a 
about uh, maybe half of it is what they're calling reheated and was there already or being moved around, for example. And, and they're saying that while it will help us with filling a hole, for example, on giving pay rises to public sector workers, that it'll only do that for one year. They'll be back into having the same problem again. And what the, the parties here are keen to do is to use this as an opportunity to negotiate um, for more financial stability for Northern Ireland. Um, mm. Going forward, where they, where they differ is that the DUP want to do that um, in parallel to the ongoing political discussions that they're having with the government on the protocol and the Windsor framework before they'll even agree to go back into Stormont. The rest of the parties are saying, let's get back in and continue the negotiation. We'll have a much stronger financial voice as a Northern Ireland executive if we're all going with one voice rather than um, different parties with different views for their own individual political gain. Okay, and that takes us to Plan B. If uh, the DUP can't be appeased, where is Plan B at? Yeah, and, and nobody's gone that far in even identifying Plan B. It was talked about before, and Chris Heaton Harris said that he wasn't going that far. I, I remember the Taoiseach saying that they needed to have a Plan B and then said he'd run back on that a number of weeks later, saying it wasn't time for Plan B and all efforts to be put into Plan A. It is probably interesting to note that um, the, the, the recently installed or reinstalled um, Tory Foreign Affairs Minister, um, David Cameron is meeting with Michael Martin today in London and there'll be some discussion there on where exactly they're at. I think most of the eggs pre-Christmas at least seem to be in the basket of hoping that um, that Plan A works, albeit if you'd asked me this time last week, Michael, we'd have said Plan A might get up and running again and we might get mm. at least an announcement if not a functioning executive this side of Christmas. As of Monday in those negotiations, it looks like that's being put steady further into the future and it was unlikely there will have very much progress in that um, before the new year. The obvious plan B is um, that we go back to direct rule and given what was established in the Good Friday Agreement that there might be a little bit more at least of a consultative role for Dublin in, in, in that. Um, nationalists argue that it should be as close to joint authority as possible. Unionists would argue that that's not what the principle of consent is about so we just have a different day and a different argument but no significant progress. Yeah, the Taoiseach uh, referred in his response to Mary Lou Macdonald that we heard there uh, to a report by the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee saying that there was a lot of good ideas in it. Uh, probably is uh, jumping the gun uh, to interpret all of that to mean that that could be Plan B. But some of those ideas the Taoiseach found interesting. And I take it that's, uh, the, for example, the idea that you wouldn't have a first and deputy first minister, you would have two first ministers uh, or people who would be in that position with similar titles. Uh, and indeed, yeah. that not one party could hold uh, the institutions uh, to ransom, as is uh, the case this time with the DUP, but has been the case in the past with Sinn Féin. Yeah, true. And, and, and those are issues and ideas that, that they would have to look at. The view of most of the parties here is that it shouldn't be something that's imposed after a Westminster report, but that it should be something that is agreed after negotiations between all of the parties. If you remember post-Good Friday Agreement, you know that we had the, we had St Andrews and we had things like the, the New Deal New approach for the last couple of years when Julian Smith uh, was able to to work as Secretary of State and get the executive back up again following uh, Sinn Féin's collapse of it. 
for the RHI scandal. You know, and on those, on those occasions they were able to tinker with clauses and move things forward in order to suit them. The view of the parties here would be that they'd like to see very little um, imposed, if you like, from Westminster. The other view, and you'll find that that's one that Sinn Féin will push back on more, because historically they have had the role of, of Deputy First Minister, even though in law both of the, the, the roles hold the same power and same authority and are equal. Um, I think now that Sinn Féin in the last Assembly election have got a very clear um, place and a very clear head of the field, the head of the DUP, you know, they will be entitled mm. to the role of First Minister and Sinn Féin would feel that the, the goalposts were being moved, if you like, if it came to the position where actually the DUP never had to serve under a, a First Minister, but only as part of a joint First Ministry. Indeed, you know, that's one of the claims that's been made mm. through the last 22 months. Yeah. That one of the reasons why the DUP don't want to go back is that they don't want to serve under Sinn Féin. The DUP, of course, will deny that and say it's about the constitution and not about finance and not about the optics of being seen to be subservient to Sinn Féin. Okay, I take it though that patience is running thin at this stage whilst uh, the politicians were going into those talks. uh, They were meeting nurses and others concerned about day-to-day life without a a government, Peter, yeah. Yeah, we've... uh, Friday and Saturday here, the buses and trains are going to be on strike, Michael. Mm-hmm. They've already had one day about 10 days ago. There's another day that, 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 that's planned. You know, I have, um, like as a, as, a, as a citizen, I have kids who are having to make rearrangements because there's no buses to school. On a day this week, we have a teacher who went on strike Wednesday a week ago. As you saw from that footage, we've had health workers who, who have been on strike and who were picketing. Um, and, and again, you know, the frustration of the ordinary man on the street is definitely worn thin, you know, and, and more and more the place in the blame at the door of all politicians, not just the DUP. It is, of course, the DUP who took the decision to collapse the Assembly and not going back in. And you even see, for example, there's been an announcement this morning from the SDLP that they didn't win enough seats in the last Assembly election to be members of the executive. They confirmed back then that they would form an opposition in the Assembly. They've announced this morning that they're going to withdraw from today's talks and leave it to what will be the executive parties to try and agree what this financial solution is to the SDLP can challenge it as an opposition going forward, but you okay. know, that, that's them clearly positioning themselves mm. as well to say, actually, this isn't the fault of everybody, this is the fault of a number of people, and um, so there was, there's a bit of, a bit of jostling going mm. on there for who'll be in the right and who'll be in the wrong, uh, whatever way this plays okay. out over the next uh, three right. uh, <laughs> You'd want a crystal ball to see uh, the answer to that. Yeah, maybe Sandra will bring us one, Michael. <laughs> maybe so. Peter, thank you for joining us as always. That's uh, Peter McVerry of our sister station, U105. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the European Parliament has voted in favour of the EU taking steps to address online addiction. Let's hear a little bit more about what this means. Finnegale MEP Colin Markey is on the line, and a very good morning to you, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. What is online addiction, and how can legislation tackle it? Well, basically, it's where it's online. It's as much to do with mobile phones as it is to do with anything else. It's the like of the infinite scrolling and where autoplay, where videos come up on your phone, be it through social media, and they automatically play, even though you didn't ask them to play. And then they like a push, what they call push notifications, where things just pop up on your screen asking you to, to, to if you like, accept or, or, or play different things. So it's things that happen on your mm. phone that, that you didn't ask to happen. Okay, so suppose, are those features going to be taken away from websites where people tend to be scrolling or tend to receive push notifications? 
Well, the situation is that the Parliament has looked for, let's say, let's say that they accept the default position on push notifications, for instance, that, a, that that's off, and if you want to change it on your phone to, to be active, that's fine. You can, you can actively make that happen, but the, the default position on the phone is that there wouldn't be, and things like that. Mm. Where but you're, 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 always being, you're always being asked uh, if you'd like to accept them. But I think the other way would be that you would actually win and have to change on the app so that it would uh, that you would allow for push notifications. But there'd be no prohibition uh, on companies saying, "Would you like push notifications?" No, I think where it would be, you'd have to win specifically into the app to set it. That that it would be that you you would want push notifications coming up. But the current situation is every time it it keeps popping up, and you have to keep rejecting them on different apps. So mm. this would be that it'd be across all apps. Well, you might be rejecting them. The you might be rejecting them if you're not an addict. I take it if you're an addict, you go straight for it. Well, you see, this is the point, and that's why we want to move away from having them uh, automatically on the phone. That that you uh, you have to go looking to put them, uh, set them up on the phone. Okay. Like the fear here well, that, is really that that, 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 that seems of, that seems relatively ineffective uh, if that's what we're talking about. Because I mean, people who want these notifications are just going to say yes and sign up to them, uh, and continue to spend their time on the phone, whether that's uh, 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 something that will include spending money or, or otherwise. Well, what we're looking for is the, the Commission to look at this. This is a, uh, an initiative from the Parliament and it has to ultimately go to the Commission. So where it will finish in terms of what level of prohibition will be put on them remains to be seen. But the Parliament does has identified this as being, if you like, something that is affecting people. It's affecting, if you like, people's concentration. Uh, it's also affecting, like, in terms of people get hooked just with constant scrolling on the phone that... You know, if it, like anything else, if you watch a TV program, when it's over, it's over, and you go away from it. But if your if your phone is constantly scrolling, you can literally spend hours and hours just watching one thing after another, and that that's the concern that people with, let's say, an addictive personality mm. can get caught up in this. Who's concern is it? It's, it's. I suppose it's. It's the concern. It's. It's. It's a public concern that uh, parental concerns as well. Like the reality is the, that young children can get caught up in this and can can spend hours on the phone and get less physical activity, for instance. And I think there's another another suggestion that was there is that we could develop an auto lock system that the phone would lock out after about we'll say 30 minutes. Mm. That that would become so. So these features should be built into the app so that they can allow, let's say, parents to 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 use them in order to ensure that their children aren't constantly, uh, if you like. So it would only apply. On it would only apply to children, would it? No, no, it's 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 applied like the the, the facilities okay. would be on the apps so that they would be allowed then be be activated is the scenario. Okay, and if um, the uh, phone goes off after a half an hour, uh, would there be a, a, an MEP or somebody available then to change somebody's nappy afterwards as well? I mean, this is nanny state stuff, isn't it? Well, it's not really. The reality, the, the concern, if you consider, consider certain things, it's like parental control in terms of children is one thing, but equally... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Like, there's gambling, gambling sites there that are built in an addictive nature. And I think it's the addictive nature yeah. concept is what we're concerned yeah. about. Like, if you've been a gambling... So you're telling me that if I'm buying concert tickets, uh, that you're going to just knock me off after a half an hour, just as I'm about to press by after uh, tearing my hair out? Uh, no, look, we're looking at situations where it will affect uh, the the option is there on it, so that a parent can set set the set the phone to, to time out after thirty minutes on the app, and I think that's the scenario. And I think to be fair, we have to consider certain things here. There's certainly the parental element of it. There's also the fact of if you like the like of gambling apps, where people yeah, but is the European Parliament is the nature. European Parliament becoming the parental end of it? Would you not be concerned where a situation... It's one thing where you could, if you can go to a bookies and put your, your, your bets on in a bookies, but where someone can, can use a, a gambling app at home and there's no, no accountability for, for, what for what they're doing. And if it's somebody that has an addictive nature, there is a concern that that, that can get out of control. Mm. And there is... We, mo- we monitor things in all other ways. But I don't see how this is... I don't see how this is... the road. OK, sure, but I don't see how this is going to make a, a sort of difference. Well, the idea is that the, 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 the initiative is, uh, is going to the, the Commission. The Commissioner has to evaluate the, the basic principles of it. There's a recognition that there is an issue around the addictive nature of these, these apps and, and that it has to be addressed. The, the things that were identified were the, like the uh, infinite scrolling and the push notifications mm. as things that feed that addictive nature. And I suppose the other, thing, the other two areas as regard that addictive nature is the gambling apps are a concern, yeah. and children are a concern. That well, they don't get well, you can keep like children. children you can keep children off if you uh, force providers to verify ages. Yes, well, well, you can, you can't. I suppose. The, the, like the, the reality is, that you know yourself. No, they're, well, they're, you, they're you, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Uh, that answer was right because you can if you force providers to verify ages, but it seems. You can't force them to do that. Well, cur- or I won't. think currently you can't. Yeah. Well, you can't do it currently, and I suppose how it, it's a difficult scenario to how you verify at the, the age of a person using a phone. But uh, probably there are apps and technologies there that could do that. Mm. Well, 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 well if, if there is real, well. but if there is real concern, let the, let them worry about it. They make enough money out of gambling, then I'm sure they'll come up with some ver- something very inventive for verifying ages. Uh, 
absolutely. I think that is a technology. It's, it's no, 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 no reason why we couldn't include something like that in it. Like what's there at the moment ultimately is going to the Commission and there will be further possibilities to be included. But I think it is the like of dealing with, with the, that nature and the effects it has on young people and, I suppose, that addictive nature as well and on, on adults as well. So there are the pushes to put it on to the app designers, as you say yourself, to make sure that they take responsibility for ensuring the design of their apps are not addictive and they're not, they're not a, if you like, a, keeping children on the phone all day, keeping people continuing to put on another bed and put the responsibility back on the app designers to make sure that they take responsibility for their apps, that they're not designed of that nature. The other thing, for instance, is even the whole area of of like flashy designs and the idea of how you can ensure that that's not that's not, uh, if you like, uh, an addictive element of it as well. So, but but primarily it's around the that's the, the that's these. that's just ridiculous. Are you saying? But you said it I yourself. You but I don't believe. I don't believe. I don't believe what I, I've heard. You've, you you want people to uh, produce bad looking websites. Not particularly. I think the infinite scrolling one is the, is the key one. But sure, everybody, one. anybody who has a website wants their website to look good. But, but lots of people go out and pay thousands, um, endless Absolutely. amount I, for I, website I, I design. Myself, but, but yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you, there is a balance in this. You don't want to become a nanny state, just like you're saying yourself. But there are some specific ones within it, particularly the infinite scrolling. And the, the one thing that's happened a lot lately is the chronological feeds was always the way like the like a social media worked in the past and now it's it's not it doesn't come chronologically so being able to stay in in touch with it, like the algorithms work differently to to not even to, to make it more difficult to work what's new and what's not so new and i think the need for the like a chronological feeds as well just so it's clear what you've seen or what you've seen before that you're not constantly going back and seeing the same thing again particularly if that infinite scrolling is, is happening what if, what, if, what if you want to it, see it again? The bottom line, oh, what if you want to see it again? Which then you just go and look for it again. That's fine. You can go and find it, but, but that's, that's automatically. This is designed. This is this this is designed so it's user friendly. Yeah, but so that you don't have so that you don't have to no, go no. and look for it again. But if if algorithms are, are not just algorithms, but mm. if apps are designed to encourage an, an addictive approach to them. That's no good for anybody. But we, we, we ban drugs because they're addictive. So the, the reality no, We're about is, to legalise drugs, aren't we? Because we can't police it. Well, we're not. I'm not saying that at all. But the reality is, if, if, something, is, if something is addictive, it's not good. And if we, we have to look at ways in which we can ensure that the apps are managed so that they, they don't create that addictive nature. And that, that, mm. I think that is a genuine concern. The, how, you, how you monitor that and how you manage that in, a, in an effective way, the principle of itself, if apps are intentionally be designed to be addictive, that's not right. But that every app, every single app is, is designed to be intentionally addictive or whatever formula of words you want to put on it to increase traffic, to get the most traffic possible, to increase your audience size. Whatever words you put on it, people are looking for users. When they design a website or an app, they want users and they want those people to use it as often and as frequently as possible. That's what it's all about. Information and content, absolutely. But if you have if you have a constant scrolling scenario where you, you never get to stop looking at the thing and it's it's, it's sucking on to the next thing, then the, you know you watch your TV. The program ends. There's an ad break. This the next program comes on. You can decide go off and do something else. 
it's it's the nature of it where it constantly feeds and constantly sucks in and, and excludes the rest of the world out of it. That is that is a concern. The concept of addiction is a concern. Don't don't dismiss the addiction. Addiction, no matter what form it takes, is a concern. And if apps have been designed in an addictive nature, that we we need to be concerned. We have a concern about the time. I think most mm. adults are well, that you, we, we need to be concerned. Nine, we, well, hold on, hold, hold, hold on a second. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about addiction? Are you talking about people being addicted to the news uh, that they're con- constantly uh, scrolling down uh, uh, a news site? Or are you talking about people who are gambling? Because they're very different things. And just because there's an addiction in both doesn't mean that uh, you have to tackle one because you have to tackle the other. Yes, you have to tackle the gambling because that can destroy lives. Uh, But if somebody is happy scrolling down through the news forever and a a day, well, good luck to them, I would think. Uh, But if 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 they're gambling, why not tackle the problem? Why not tackle gambling rather than apps Uh, and the way apps are designed? Because they're all designed the same way. But it's not, it's not just about gambling. You say about, let's say, the news. If you sit and watch the news all day and you don't go out and walk the dog or don't go out and get exercise, that's not good for you. The reality is... But people, people, people might want to hear Colin Markey tell them what is good for them and what's not good for them or tell I, them what to do and what not to do. That's the point. That's the I nanny state policing the thing. I accept that, Michael, but I think many of us have a frustration with the way in which phones are designed, that they don't, uh, if you like, they, they, they are inclined to suck people in, particularly as a parent. I see it myself, how they, 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 they consume young children's activities and times, and they, it's get hard to get them to do other things. So it's, if we don't, if we have a problem with a gambling addiction, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, there's not, it's the very same thing, and it doesn't have to be just about gambling. It has to be at the use of, if, if people are using the phone to the point that it's excluding other aspects of a rounded lifestyle, I think we, we do need to get concerned. It's not about being in any state, but if people are going to designing apps of an addictive nature that is really having a, a, a significant effect on, let's say, young people's rounded development, I think we need to look at it because if, if it was if it was yeah, if you apply the same principle as you do to drugs, where, where we don't want drugs where they're addictive okay. we don't want people doing things that are going to, we see it in there's a concern among, I see it as a parent with young children caught up on an app, on a tablet for hours at a time and being able to get them to, to go off and do other things is difficult. And if you could, if that timed out after an hour, and they were used to it timed out after an hour, and they could go off and do something else, then that, that, that would just that would help in terms of parental mm-hmm. uh, uh, situations, you know. Okay, so so with turning off the Wi-Fi, I suppose. Uh, but listen, we we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That is Finnegale MEP Colin Markey. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, Colin Corrigan reporting all morning. Sean McLean has been elected and unopposed as uh, the new head of uh, the Louth County Board. This is after Peter Fitzpatrick pulling out of the race for what would have been his fifth and final term. Colin, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about what's going on here. We know that Peter Fitzpatrick stood down from all of his positions on the Louth County Board, but would it be far from the truth to say that he didn't go quietly? 
Well, he certainly didn't go away quietly, uh, Michael. Good morning to uh, all your listeners. Um, yeah, he really went at it, both barrels both, both barrels fully loaded last night before he stepped down as uh, chairman. There was a letter uh, near the, uh, not far from the start of the meeting, which was read by one of the stadium com- uh, committee members, Dermot Clark, and this came from GA headquarters, who weren't obviously happy at uh, a recent interview last week that Peter Fitzpatrick gave, uh, gave to a local uh, newspaper, uh, Crow Park, saying there were inaccuracies and some misunderstandings, and it was important that uh, they were highlighted. Uh, however, um, responding, Peter Fitzpatrick uh, wasn't having any of it. Uh, he said uh, he w- was making no apologies for pushing Crow Park all the way. He highlighted a number of uh, issues. He said, well, he was no longer a member of the stadium committee, but uh, he uh, more or less said that he didn't think Loud had been treated fairly along the way by Crow Park. Uh, he said he was getting sick of it. He referenced 2010, of course, uh, the Leinster final. He gave mention to that. He uh, claimed there was a click in uh, operating in Crow Park. It was a case of jobs for the boys. So he was really going at it f- uh, full throttle and uh, there were there were no apologies and uh, you know he referenced the fact that uh, other counties seem to be getting money as he claimed and Loud were being left behind he said that uh, Loud um, seemed to be always just uh, under consideration and no money was coming their way now obviously Crow Park are disputing that uh, Crow Park as you will r- remember uh, over the summer weren't happy at uh, aspects of the, how the stadium was uh, progressing they weren't obviously happy at the costings which had risen considerably from uh, at the start of the year they, they they were around the 18 million mark and then they rose to 29 million and then they were paired back to 25 but Crow Park weren't uh, uh, happy and there was a warning letter issued to Loud in, in, in June early June of uh, this year but, uh, but really uh, Peter Fitzpatrick getting an awful lot off his chest last night. Uh, I suppose a lot, a, lot of, a lot of delegates probably had sympathy for him and agreed with a lot of what he was saying, although there were a lot of other delegates who weren't too happy and indeed felt that uh, by by going, taking this uh, route, uh, you know, and criticising Crow Park, it may indeed end up doing loud some damage because remember, uh, Michael, uh, this uh, whole stadium is dependent on Crow Park support you know, Loud, Loud are, are being promised money from the IIP scheme. Um, they're, they're hoping, obviously, that will come on stream very shortly. Only some of it has been paid. The, the, the Most of it, the, the majority of it, has yet to be paid out. It's going to the Department of Justice and Innes now. Crow Park uh, will be looking possibly to push that through now in the next number of weeks and months under the chairmanship, of obviously, of Sean McLean, who has taken over. Um, but, you know, the, the worry that some delegates had at the meeting last night, uh, Des McDonald, for instance, of St Nicholas's, um, you know, he was, uh, he was worried that... Uh, you know what Peter Fitzpatrick was coming out with uh, you know Mike can go down well in Crow Park also Brian Rafferty of Cooley Des McDonald um, he said if, if he was in Crow Park's shoes he wouldn't be giving uh, loud money either he said everybody wanted the stadium but um, he, he said that uh, you know he he, um, he, he, he quite highly ex- accepted that Peter Fitzpatrick had the right to defend himself he perhaps didn't think it was, he was going about it the right way Mm. Will those comments damage uh, Louth in terms of uh, that support it's hoping for from Crow Park? Well, the hope from a loud perspective is that it won't. Um, I suppose there's a new man in now, Sean McLean. Uh, you might have heard some of his interviews. He's a very pragmatic individual. He knows uh, he knows the ins and outs. He's been involved in county board affairs before. So you would be hoping that you know there might be a clean slate. Let's say he he will be on the on the Crow Park committee, and I think the work starts immediately. So I think from Pro, Crow Park uh, perspective, I think there was you'd have to say there was a breakdown in communication with, with Peter Fitzpatrick and, and some of the Crow Park officials. Peter did 
say that money had been kind of promised at various meetings. He said the, uh, he was fed up of Loud being the bridesmaids and uh, you know he did reference then a letter that was uh, published by uh, by Danny Culligan over the summer uh, as well uh, who, who Danny had raised uh, worries over aspects of the of the uh, stadium and how it was progressing and how it was being dealt with although uh, Dermot Clark another member of the stadium committee uh, did uh, uh, did clarify that uh, the letter the warning letter that Crow Park had sent uh, to uh, Loud was on the 9th of June and that uh, letter from Danny, Cl- Danny uh, Culligan uh, wasn't until the end of June so Peter Fitzpatrick did say that uh, the biggest problem he did say at the, uh, in, his, uh, in his address last night the biggest problem he had was that letter uh, from Danny Culligan however Dermot Clark did uh, contradict that and saying that you know the warning letter from Crow Park had come before that letter had been issued by uh, by uh, da- by Danny Culligan uh, so um, Dermot Clark was one of those concerned as well that you know uh, things uh, by Peter Fitzpatrick saying what he did might not be helpful but Loud have to move on from here they have no choice they have to row in Crow Park you know mm. Crow Park are, are, they are on board now uh, without Peter Fitzpatrick on the on the Loud okay. uh, delegation uh, but um, I think Sean McLean has made it fairly clear uh, that without Crow Park's uh, backing uh, the Loud project is going nowhere I mean, indeed we have a clip of of, uh, of the new chairman here last night uh, speaking about the importance indeed of uh, Crow Park being on board uh, Michael there's no question, Colm. Yeah, um, listen. There's no point in trashing out stuff that was done already. We are where we are with the stadium. It's a vital. It's vital that we get Crow Park on board with this. That we get the ship steadied, and we move forward together with the clubs and the county board and Crow Park. Mm. So that, that's the only way the stadium is going to get built. A big aspect, obviously, is the release uh, of that IIP money, which has been been promised. Some of it is already in, but there's the, the, the most of it has yet to come to come in. Sean, would that, would that be one of the top priorities from your point of view? Is to make sure that money gets into the, the account? No question, Colm. The, obviously, the stadium won't get built without it. Um, there's too much money involved there, so we need to... You know, Crow Park is dealing with this. They're speaking to Ennis, and they're speaking to the Department of Justice there, so there's very capable people in charge of the Crow Park Committee, and I have no doubt that they will get across the line first. That it'll make up a major part of the funding for it. We don't know what the stadium's going to come in at overall. Obviously, it's going to be done in phases, but Crow Park funding and Leinster Council funding, that's all also going to form part of, 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 of how to fund this stadium. Yeah, listen, we need to sit down, we need to see what Ennis is going to release to us, we need to see what's available in Crow Park and we need to see what's available in Leinster. When we know that, then we know how much money we have and then we know what we can build. It's, it's no different than doing work around your own club. You figure out what you need to spend, you figure out how much you've got and then you do what you can with the money you have. Mm, that's Sean McLean there, Michael. So I think it's a case, um, mm. you know, of trying to draw a line under it and try to move on now. And hopefully in the new year, that uh, that IIP money, which is central, without that, now they're going nowhere. Okay. It's almost fift- fifteen million uh, euro you're talking about. So the hope mm. would be that they can move that along, uh, Michael, okay. and get that money in the bank. So how will Loud GAA remember Peter Fitzpatrick? Do you think what might be his legacy as uh, the county chairman? Um, well, I, I think, you know, as, as some of the delegates pointed out last night, he was the man that got the ball rolling when he was elected uh, four years ago. He, you know, he made it fairly clear that he wanted Loud as a team on the field to be competing at the highest level. He managed to get Mickey Hart on board for three seasons. Uh, and the stadium, of course, was the other issue because uh, other chairmen had, uh, you know, attempted to, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, 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 tackle the stadium issue without any great success. But Peter Fitzpatrick certainly got the ball rolling um, and with the help of others as well, they identified the site, they got the, the, the site in Dundalk and moved it along but you know no, no question about it the last uh, six, seven months have been very, very difficult and the, the thing did certainly go pear-shaped Crow Park obviously were soured by what was going on um, but you know as some of the delegates said
said last night in their support of Peter Fitzpatrick, Pat O'Brien of the Sean O'Mahony certainly uh, was one very vocal voice in support of the outgoing chairman. He said that, you know, when history has been written and look, when delegates and clubs look back in a few years' time, they will certainly be thankful for Peter, Peter Fitzpatrick for the work that he's done. Uh, you know, he also said that, you know, former chairman had sat on their hands on the county issue and done nothing but Peter mm. Fitzpatrick moved it on and he took the stadium, uh, he got the site and he took it to a new level. Um, you know, when he came in first, he had targeted September 2024 as the date for the first game being played in the stadium. That's obviously uh, not going to happen now, but he has moved along. The question is now, the big question is whether Sean McLean or anybody that follows him in the years that uh, follow uh, uh, Michael, whether they can finish off the job because uh, mm. that's the ultimate goal is that, uh, you know, Loud, Loud need the stadium and they need it as soon as they can. Okay, well, Peter Fitzpatrick, work is done. The King is dead. Long live the King. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, you'd expect a, a different style from Sean McLean uh, as he takes over the reins. Well, he's, he, he is an experienced official. He's done great work with his club, uh, Hunterstown. Uh, he, he has a background in construction as well. So you suppose he'd have an idea of, you know, what's required, what's going on and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I would expect him. I think, you know, he, as he said there in the interview, you know, he, he knows what, what it's about. He knows what's what's being expected. And uh, you know, you're going to have to play a ball with Crow Park. That's the bottom line. Um, you know, people can argue about, you know, whether Crow Park should have released money or if they promised money, why wasn't it released? But Crow Park, you have to remember, you know, they they, they had they got their fingers burnt over uh, Parky Keeve down in Cork. So, you know, they, they didn't want to go down that road again. They wanted to make sure everything was done correctly and, uh, you know, that Loud could only spend money that was available to them. And that's the way it's going to progress here. It's going to be done in phases. So Loud, from now on, uh, once the money is in the bank, they can spend that money and and bring it along and get, get, the, get, get the phases uh, completed. But it's going to be a, a much slower process. It's not going to be done in one fell swoop. That's for sure, Michael. A new dog. Very good. Colin, we leave it there. Thank you uh, for joining us. Head of Sport with LMFM, Colin Corrigan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, some of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, Lisa, thanks uh, for your phone call to the station this morning. Lisa says that, like me, she's sick and tired of hearing people parrot some tripe that they've heard via a third party or online about the wealth of benefits being doled out willy-nilly to refugees when they come into the country. We've been listening to this nonsense for years now and have had several shows like this show that these tales are just rubbish that uh, people spewing them have been showed up for what they are. Do people really believe everything that they read online? Thanks uh, Lisa very much for that. Margaret uh, texting us a pretty similar text as well. Margaret says uh, the information from that person regard to payments made to refugees probably came from the Truth Bible. The internet of course. I wonder does that person know the way that the Irish were treated when they went to England back in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s? They were met with signs and houses stating no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. I've changed it, Margaret. Uh, if uh, I remember correctly, the way it was uh, and the order uh, was no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Uh, if a relation of uh, that person was turned away by one of uh, those signs, how would they feel? I, I know it happened uh, to relatives of mine when they went to England the Irish were treated like dirt. Is this the real history of this country taught in schools now? If it's not, then it should be. The history of a country is important to let people know how the country 
evolved. Maybe that's why people believe the proverbial that they read online because they don't know the real truth of what happened in their own country. Thanks, Margaret, as I say. Thanks, Lisa, as well. Well, hold your breath, Margaret. Hold your breath, Lisa. Wait till you hear this one. I don't know. Um, I can't resist reading that because I'm getting so many messages like it and I'm kind of feeling worn down at this stage um, because people are just regurgitating nonsense. Um, Kay senses uh, this particular text. Thanks for texting us, Kay, um, but nonsense if ever. Uh, She says, why aren't all refugees having their benefits cut? And she's talking about a Romanian neighbour. Your Romanian neighbour, Kay, is not a refugee. They are a European. They are members of the European Union. Uh, And they, like uh, any other European, have the right to move to this country. Uh, It's just the way it is when you're a member of the European Union, uh, as a state that is, that people from the other 26 states can come here and we can go to any of the other 26 states. They are not refugees. They can come, set up home, work, go on the dole, whatever it is. Uh, So uh, they're not going to have their benefits cut. And if they do, you might have your benefits cut uh, and your children might have their benefits cut because they're entitled to exactly the same uh, entitlements uh, as anybody born in this country, which is the same when an Irish person goes to Germany, Greece, Spain, Portugal, Denmark, Germany, France, whatever. Um, Now, Kay goes on to say uh, how much this Romanian is getting in benefits. Uh, I'm not sure if that's uh, a thousand or a million or is it 10 million a week that they're getting? I don't know, um, but they're getting an awful lot of money, according to Kay, uh, who says she's 51, lived and worked here all of her life, contributed everything to this country. And now I have cancer and I'm told I'm not entitled to one penny in benefits. Tell me what's wrong with that picture. Uh, Well, it doesn't uh, sound true, Kay. I think that's... I don't know if you have cancer, but um, you're entitled, uh, surely, if you've worked all your life to job benefit or uh, job seekers allowance, or if you have a long term illness, then you're entitled to long term illness benefit. Um, or, or else you have so much money in the bank. Uh, actually, that wouldn't be entitled. That's not means tested. Long term illness uh, is non means tested. So it's just, just nonsense. Why are people, why are people so intent on sending mistruths to radio stations? so that they can um, get into other people's heads and hope that they'll treat innocent, vulnerable people coming here badly. Badly. What is wrong? That we're, we're, that's what we're doing. Paddy Duffy, uh, thanks for your text uh, to the programme. He says, no nationalist Republicans should be trying to make the six counties work. It's unionists who should be doing that, but the DUP are still blindsided by hate and fear that they can't see. The DUP are on a hook of their own making and should let them, uh, we should, they should be left to get it off it themselves, says Paddy. Um, somebody on the subject of mobile phones saying, Michael, it's none of Colin Markey's business what I do as an adult on my phone. What a, a stupid argument. I think he's trying to control us. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, somebody else in touch with us uh, as well about that particular subject saying, what a load of cods wallop. Jesus, is this the best that they can come up with? <laughs> That's Emma in Mornington. Thanks, Emma. Uh, very much indeed uh, for your message. Uh, we'd uh, 
uh, Kay then in touch saying that her thoughts and prayers are with all of the people involved and affected by the ongoing search for the missing fisherman locally. She's praying for the family of the missing man in the hope that he's returned to them soon and for the rescue team to keep them safe in the important work that they're doing. It's an horrific ordeal for any family to have to go through, particularly at this time of the year. Well said, Kay. Alan in touch about uh, the reduced supports uh, for Ukrainians saying that these changes should have been made on a phased basis. The reduction should have been in stages rather than one fell swoop. Uh, that is uh, the wrong approach that the government is taking. He firmly believes uh, the changes will add to the current problems rather than help ease them. People can't afford to rent on the current support. So how are they expected to rent on lower funds? It's uh, an ill-judged move, Alan says. Mary in touch too, saying uh, that uh, the cuts government announced during the week to supports for Ukrainians are over the top. They've gone from one extreme to the other. It'll be very difficult for anyone to survive on under €40 Euro a week, particularly if they have children. She says she appreciates changes had to be made as the supports currently in place were not sustainable but she thinks the government has gone too far and in the opposite direction. Well thanks uh, for your phone call as well to the programme this morning. Mary our phone number is 0419832000 text or WhatsApp 0861800658 Michael Reed on LMFM Now the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Assisted Dying continues to have one of the most difficult conversations of all, that of our own demise. And indeed, if we should have the right to choose how and when we die. Yesterday, the committee heard uh, from experts in palliative care. I think from a palliative care point of view, we very often deal with trying to discuss with patients, and particularly patients who are coming into maybe the last months of life, that the changes they may be seeing in their body are in relation to an underlying illness, not necessarily in relation to a medication, but then sometimes people are reluctant to take medication because they feel the medication is causing, is causing these symptoms. And patients may feel that way, but also their family can. So you end up having these many discussions with people about what is the best thing, what's the best option. I think that having, having that understanding that we're very clear about what it is we're doing, what we're trying to do, I think that's really important because so many people are fearful of different medication, of that by going to, if you're going, to, if you're seeing palliative care or if you start on a syringe driver, that that means that somebody is trying to kill you. And I have those conversations on a very routine basis with patients and with families. So you have to try and sort of counter the belief and the concerns people have. And that's why I think I would be concerned about any change in legislation with allowing assisted dying will make it more difficult to be able to counter these beliefs. Right, that's uh, Professor Regina McQuillan of uh, the Irish Palliative Medicines, Medicine Consultants Association speaking at uh, the Assisted Dying Committee hearing yesterday. Let's speak uh, to a member of uh, that committee, Finnefall TD, John Lahart, who's on the line. A very good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme. I, I take it uh, that uh, you come from uh, at this from a, a different perspective than most, given your background as a, a trained psychotherapist. Would I be right in saying that what we're talking about here is a balance of rights, given the concerns that the committee has been hearing now over many months, a balance of rights and if safeguards can be put in place to protect the vulnerable? Morning, Michael, uh, and thanks for um, dealing with the topic. Um, I, I kind of thought at the start when the committee was established that there would be a, a lot more interest 
in the topic, uh, given that it's the first time uh, that Rock this committee has dealt with it or Parliament has dealt with it in, in uh, many ways. And if I can say just at the start, it's for me, it's almost like being in college and university doing a course on assisted dying because the quality of the witnesses that we've had uh, on both sides and on no sides has been exceptional. The papers that they've mm. produced um, in terms of the material that they've given us, the information they've provided with us, the breadth of witnesses we've had as well, Michael, you know, in relation to, you know, from international experience to yesterday, the palliative care people, um, to uh, pastoral perspectives and religious perspectives. I was very keen that, that they be heard too, because very often we forget that, you know, the pastoral intervention is very often mm. very kind of concluding intervention or in the final phase of the person's life. And all, so churches, very have opposed, uh, all churches have opposed assisted dying, haven't they? Um, not yeah, just the yeah. Christian churches, but all churches. Yeah, mm. uh, they have, but I, and I think it was important their voice be heard. I... I have found the whole piece quite challenging and I think uh, I was very keen at the start I think when people are asked about assisted dying that maybe stereotypically they have particular illnesses in their head when they think uh, of you know wanting to end their life you know colloquially people say oh if I get that please make sure you know that um, that I they I'm assisted that I get every assistance I, I require in dying. And yet we have, I'd be very conscious that we have examples of people with such stereotypical illnesses who seem to live uh, full lives and seem to uh, squeeze the very last pips out of their lives and live meaningful lives. So one of the things I was, would have been very keen on, and I think the committee is, has really adhered to this, is that we don't associate assisted dying with particular illnesses. Uh, and I think we've achieved that. The second thing, because then it creates a real fear around those mm. illnesses, uh, which may be unnecessary. The second thing is the language of, you know, if you uh, even lean towards the notion of introducing assisted dying, are you seen as, pro you know, progressive and liberal? And if you have queries or uh, any kind of qualms mm. about it, um, that you're seen as kind of conservative and dispassionate. And I don't think any of those terms apply to this. I, I would regard myself as neutral. I've oscillated from yeah. side to side yeah. in the debate as we've gone along. And the palliative care one, uh, contributions yesterday and in previous um, uh, sessions of the Oireachtas Committee made quite a strong impact on me. In, in what sense? I think... Because I think unconsciously there was a notion, and I'm only speaking for myself, that if assisted dying is to be introduced in some shape or form in Ireland, well, who would be the professional practitioners who would be essentially doing the intervention? And I think there would be an assumption that those involved in palliative care, uh, because they are so closely connected. Yeah. Uh, um, and they've said that they don't want to be, yes. Absolutely. And that's, that's really interesting. The second thing I think some of their compelling uh, testimony was that just by introducing it, uh, we'll just say if Ireland was to legalise uh, assisted dying, even in the most narrow forms, suddenly it's a question that becomes accepted, uh, potentially, that mm -hmm. as someone approaches the end of their life, a question that we've never asked in Ireland, um, such as, have you considered assisted 
uh, dying as an alternative or as a route to go suddenly becomes a potential question. Mm. Um, so uh, there's a... What, 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 if that, what, what if that is one of the safeguards? Uh, I mean, if it's to be legislated for and safeguards are in place, but that's a question that could never be asked of uh, any patient, let alone a terminally ill patient. And just going back to what you said about the palliative uh, care teams mm. and your assumption that they would have administered whatever... Uh, is needed to end somebody's life. Um, surely that wouldn't happen in hospices, palliative care being uh, offered to people in hospices, uh, in other healthcare settings and at home. Surely there would be uh, a separate place uh, where people would be assisted to die or that it would happen in their own homes. Yeah. Look, and you're asking really interesting questions mm. there. Uh, I suppose the, the international experience that we have um you know, when I went into this, and I, and I probably haven't uh, abandoned this particular stance, um, well, again, from palliative care people uh, in a different uh, uh, session a number of months ago, there was evidence given, you know, that there there is some pain that palliative care and palliative medicine simply can't contain and simply can't deal with. Um, it's, it's, it's rare enough, but it does exist, uh, which means there are people who who do die in small numbers uh, in unrelenting, unrelievable pain. And that made uh, an equal impact on me. Mm. Um, so we would, you know, in my mind, you'd be talking about, you know, a very small cohort, very much at close to end of life. The problem, Michael, then is, <laughs> is legally trying to define all of this. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what I suppose we've discovered from the international experience is with the very, very best will and with the very, very best intentions, uh, an unintended consequence of legislation uh, for assisted dying is a slippery slope was created that was never the intention. And in uh, places like Oregon and the United States and places like Canada, um, suddenly it becomes broadened and um, almost becomes normalized in some jurisdictions to a to a concerning degree, I'd have to say, and I wouldn't have been aware of it until I started, but there are other jurisdictions where, you know, they seem to have kept it tight. Mm. So I know that there are those who say, you know, in terms of opinion polls, there's popular opinion in favour of assisted dying, and I can Mm. understand exactly why that is. The work of the committee has shown that it's much more complex, mm. much more complex. Okay, uh, and but, requires but, very but, detailed study. Yeah. But, but what about uh, at times uh, when people want the right to choose to go out on their own terms? Uh, I mean, we've seen very prominent people who have since passed away who have said that they wanted legislation like this in place. You think of Mary Fleming or Ficky Phelan yeah. uh, or people yeah. like that. Uh, and you think of Ficky Phelan thinking about the way her children would remember her and that's something that people would often talk about. I want you to remember this way rather than when I'm sick and unable because we all have the right to end our lives. Uh, uh, some of us may get to a stage though where we won't be able to do that ourselves and that's when the assistance is is required that's uh, those arguments that we've been hearing you see yeah so Mary Fleming that case would have impacted very heavily on people and certainly the thing that differentiated Mary Fleming from my understanding compared to an able-bodied person was her actual ability to take her own life and uh, she physically didn't have the ability to take her own life wanted to take her own life now I'm not attributing or ascribing any motives uh, what I'm about to say is nothing to do with Mary Fleming we have we have 
also had a lot of evidence and testimonies from witnesses in relation to, you know, the burdensomeness that um, people feel. Um, one of the things that, again, uh, profoundly impacted me, you know, the, the committee is to deal with this, has been dealing with assisted dying for months. We've heard very powerful testimonies, which again would have impacted me, that we need to do an awful lot more in Ireland in relation to assisting people living. And that would cut out a very significant portion of people who might consider assisted dying as an alternative. I'm not saying it would, it would uh, eliminate everybody who would think like that. We don't do enough to assist people living, um, and we don't do enough to assist people uh, in terms of, you know, burdensomeness is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a thing that has come up in, in a huge amount of testimonies as a reason for people uh, considering uh, uh, assisted uh, suicide as an option. But in terms of dying on your own terms, I made this this point at an area committee, or at, at, at the, the Oireachtas Health Committee um, when we were dealing with this. I don't really know of anybody, you know, I'm 59, I've, I've never really encountered anybody who died on their own terms, Michael. Mm. Um, you know, death is, a, is uh, I've experienced it um, uh, in terms of family and mm-hmm. uh, friends. Mm. I've witnessed it. Um, and I've traveled the road as often many people have, and it's been very enriching, but it's also been very stressful. It's messy. Um, it's not tidy. I've never seen anybody I know who died on their own terms. Okay. I have witnessed okay. um, very close family members who died reconciled to the idea of their own death, um, having sorted everything out in their own mm-hmm. mind and having settled all their affairs, it seemed to me, psychologically, emotionally. Um, but I still don't believe they died on their okay. own terms, you know. And it's a ter- I think that's a phrase that we yeah. need to be careful about, okay. you know, because... Uh, uh, it's uh, not something that's open to people. I hate to cut you off, but we've run over time at this stage. Uh, I have to leave it there. Thank you very much, though, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Fianna Fáil TD, John Lehart, a member of uh, the Joint Committee on Assisted Dying. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.